Hello and welcome to the Small Animal Clinical Podcast, brought to you from the Royal Veterinary College in London. My name is Shailen Chisani. And today it's my great pleasure to welcome Chiara, who works as a clinician on the oncology service at the RVC's Queen Mother Hostel for Animals. So thanks very much, Chiara, for joining me today. You notice I didn't pronounce your surname because I'm not entirely sure how best to pronounce it. Is it Leo or Leo? Leo. Leo? Okay. So thanks very much for joining me today. Thank you, Shailene, for inviting me to your podcast, even if I have this very strong Italian accent. I promise you, it's going to be fine. (laughs) Hopefully people will understand me. Don't worry. Um, Um, So look, today I wanted to do was kind of have a general discussion about cancer in dogs and cats. And it's obviously talking about oncology in 20 minutes, but um, what I want to try and do is kind of give the listeners a refresher about what cancer is, what the principles of how we should approach it clinically, and then hopefully in the future we can come back and discuss kind of some of the more common types of cancer that people will see and deal with. And, you know, obviously I know that here at the RBC we have a kind of flourishing oncology service, and I know that at the end of the podcast we're going to talk a little bit about some perceptions of oncology um, and veterinary oncology, etc. Um, but I want to start basically right at the beginning, really, and the most obvious place to start is by asking you if you could kind of remind us essentially what cancer is sort of at a cellular or a microscopic level. So the key word for cancer is clonality. It, mean, it means that cancer is an uncontrolled clonal expansion of cells arising from the same mother, mother cell. And um, so we differentiate between the term of tumor and cancer. A tumor can be either benign or malignant, while the term cancer implicates already a malignant nature, having the potential of giving, giving metastasis. So, that's, so you shouldn't say he has benign cancer? No, you can't. That's interesting, because I think colloquially or in layman speak or whatever, or maybe even people like me, we might, just, we yeah. might not use those terms correctly. So that, that's interesting to hear. So I think it's, a, um, it's important to define, even just speaking, what is cancer or what is a tumor, because we know that uh, um, a cancer, so we know that it is already malignant, has, can have the potential of being spread, and if the cancer has already spread, generally speaking, it can be cured. Um, this is why there is a desperate need to detect and treat cancer as soon as possible, and uh, I have to say that the approach wait and see is not acceptable anymore in, in, in now, nowadays. Um, so you would be advocating if you have a patient and you suspect, no matter how small you can't your suspicion, wait. No. You get on with trying to find out? You can't wait because the intrinsic nature of a tumor is to grow and it will grow. So the only thing that it, it, it can happen is if you wait the tumor will grow and you will have, will have less chances mm. to cure it. So um, because the bigger the tumor becomes, the lower is the chance to be able to remove it completely mm. and the higher is the possibility that it will spread further. Of course, there are differences between tumors. Some are more malignant, some behave more quietly, but I guess it's a good rule to keep in mind that an early approach to cancer gives the best chance to the patient. Yeah. Usually, from a cellular point of view, we recognize three big families of cancer. Um, Malignant tumors from the epithelial tissues, which are called carcinomas. Malignant tumors of mesenchymal origin, which are called sarcomas, and round cell tumors. The three of them, they have different features and require different treatments. That's the reason why it's so important to know exactly what we are dealing with, and uh, a good 
diagnostic plan is essential in oncology. Yeah, no, fair point. Um, because I think that's another thing, really, is that I guess because of what you guys do, you're so familiar with all this kind of information. But even for me, I think I'm going to learn a lot sitting here talking to you today about all of this stuff. Because even some of that kind of basics, it's three families, et cetera, et cetera, we we would see cancer diagnoses a lot and read histopath reports a lot and stuff. But I guess taking it back to that kind of level is something that a lot of people are probably not very familiar with doing. And so I think it's going to be kind of really interesting for us to take this stuff back a little bit. Um, and I guess something else I wanted to ask you was that in terms of the presentation of cancer, presumably not all types of cancer are going to present with some kind of mass or, or obvious structural lesion. So is something like leukemia, for example, would we class that as a type of cancer? Yes, of course. Leukemia is a cancer. It's a cancer of blood. It's a type of round, can round cell cancer that arises either from the bone marrow or from the spleen, depending on the types of uh, leukemia. And it belongs to those tumors that we call liquid tumors in contrast with solid tumors. So solid tumors is generally a mass that you can see, a liquid tumor like leukemias or lymphomas are I love more... that. I love that <laughs> name. It's, the, the it's liquid. a serious thing, but a, yeah, liqu a liquid is. tumor. Yeah. <laughs> so they, they are usually of hematopoietic origins, and you see them uh, in the blood. They have a great tendency of spreading, so that sometimes it it's impossible for us to understand which one is the primary tumor and which one is the metastatic disease. Therefore, we don't even speak about metastasis for those tumors. Um, and uh, as a, we have to consider it as a systemic mm. disease and therefore requires a systemic therapy, such as chemotherapy, for example. Okay, so it's a cancer, but it's a systemic cancer. Yes. Okay, that's good. I, again, that's, um, <clears throat> that's interesting because when we talk to clients that I think a lot of people, lay people, pet owners, heard of leukemia, and they'll say to you in the consultation room, so you mean like leukemia? And you're like, uh, I'm not sure what to say. Um, so that's good. I'm going to take that on board as well. It's a liquid cancer, and it's systemic. Yes. Excellent. But, um, but there are, I, you know, is, this is the big um, distinction that we do between solid cancer, mm. like a mass that you can see, something that you can detect immediately, mm. or, or these, again, these systemic cancers. In general, there are rules. It's, it is not easy for a clinician to assess whether a dog has cancer or not, but there are very general rules that we can try to follow and that uh, has to be um, kind of um, an alarm mm. for, for the clinician. And we can resume them in, them in 10 big um, steps in, in yep. 10 big rules like if you see any lamp that changes in shape or size or any new lamp or any sore that does not heal if there is any change in bowel or bladder habits if the, the patient has difficulty in eating or swallowing if there is any difficulty in urinating or defecating or any unexplained bleeding or discharge from the body if the dog or the cat has lost their appetite or there is some chronic weight loss difficulty in breathing or coughing stiffness and oral um, odor so those markers should be an alarm for the mm. clinician. Um, and I guess, I know we sort of talked about this earlier, but so 
I guess some of the issues or the things that some people might struggle with in practice is that those things that you've just listed obviously are things that could potentially, or at least some of them could potentially be because of a whole list of other different diseases. And I guess what you're saying is that it's sort of better safe than sorry and you should be you should be quite liberal in your suspicion that the patient might have cancer. Right. Because better to rule it out than to miss it for things to go on longer and then your chances of being able to help the patient are worse. Yes. Is that fair? It is fair enough because okay. as for what I have said before, an early detection mm-hmm. is the best chance to, to cure cancer. So, yes, I guess that... Um, if you have even the suspicion or it is in your list of differentials, yeah, yeah. it's important to try to rule out rather than just ignore that this could be a, a problem. Um, and I guess one of the other things is, you know, the, the clients often will say to to us is, um, you know, when we're talking about their, their pet potentially having cancer is, or did the blood test show they have cancer? It can in certain cases, for example, leukemias or lymphomas, yes, but um, it is not the rule. Yeah. So if there is something really, really clear, of course, it's much easier, but yeah. it, it doesn't really ha- happen always. So I think for, for lay, I mean, I've heard that question, I don't know, over the years, many times from clients. So you talk to them about a the patient might have cancer and they say, did you find on the blood test? You're like, oh. Okay, cool. And um, the other thing is, I think, that comes really intuitively to people is that cancer is diagnosed much more commonly in older rather than younger animals. And I guess the question is, do we know kind of biologically why that that is the case? Yes, actually, we kind of know it. It's a a very complicated mechanism. But one of the features of cancer is um, genetic instability. And it means that when a cell and its genetic material are subject to injuries, specifically from carcinogens, mutations in the DNA can happen. And the more the DNA is in contact with carcinogens, the higher is the probability for those mutations to happen. Not all the mutations will lead to cancer, but some of them can be promoter of cancer. So Intuitively, an mm-hmm. old body is exposed for a longer period to those carcinogens, and therefore there is a higher chance for those mutations to develop. Mm-hmm. Moreover, the body is very efficient in repairing genetic alteration, or if these are too severe to lead to... Um, basically it says to the cell, now you have to die because you are not a normal cell anymore. Mm. But becoming old, the cells partially lose this ability repairing themselves. And this could be another reason why we see more commonly tumors in older patients. And lastly, um, some tumors may need years to develop. So maybe, and there is a long path that they need to follow before to become um, Mm detectable masses so maybe we will see a tumor when our dog is 10 year old but the development started years 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 before so yeah okay so um in summary then essentially there is a greater likelihood that those carcinogenic exposures are going to result in cancerous mutations obviously the longer the time goes on the more those exposures occur that's one thing the second thing is that the body becomes less able to detect and protect, to detect the body. And protect yeah. itself essentially as well. And then, as you say, it's also possible that some cancers developed quite a few years ago, but they need time until they become detectable. Right. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And then 
Uh, it's just intuitive that people always feel a little bit more sad when a young person or a young animal um, gets cancer. And I wondered if you could say a little bit about the kinds of cancers that we have diagnosed in sort of younger animals. Yeah, the fact that we see cancer in, uh, in older patients, uh, it doesn't mean that cancer in young patients doesn't exist. Yeah. And unfortunately, yeah. although it is rare, it is usually much more aggressive than in older patients. And this is a, um, it's exactly the same in human medicine. So there are some types of cancers like leukemias, which are very typical of young age. Um, the, the disease between children and puppies are very similar. The difference is in terms of prognosis, because in human medicine, they can treat very, very aggressively those, uh, those tumors. I'm, I'm thinking about leukemias, for example, while we can't do it with our animals for welfare reasons, because we... We will see, um, we, I, I guess we will have a chat about the potential side effects of cancer treatments, but we can't um, arm our patients with our treatment, so yeah. we don't want yeah. to have too many side effects. And um, so, <clears throat> so basically, yeah, so kind of those liquid systemic types of cancer are the ones that were diagnosed most often in young animals? Yes. Um, okay, cool. Now... This next bit, I guess, is a, it's a whole sort of discussion in its own right, and I'm going to force you to, to, to summarize it really in a way. But I wanted to just kind of talk about a general clinical approach to cancer. And then I, I thought really for the purpose of this podcast, we should focus really on a patient that actually has a mass lesion or a structural lesion of some sort. So you're presented with a patient and it has a mass lesion. You've already said about how important it is to diagnose cancer as early as possible. So what is my approach going to be to this patient with this mass lesion? So there is a rule that <laughs> oncologists always say, and they say that you can't really miss. These three rules are biopsy, biopsy, and biopsy. <laughs> okay, and, and if we can add another one, it will be, again, biopsy. biopsy. So to know what you are dealing with is a mandatory, absolutely. And um, you have to keep in mind that biopsy, um, first of all, they won't arm the patient. Because I know that there are some, I had some clients asking me, are you sure that you really want to biopsy? Because maybe the tumor will wake up. This is not true. I so, love the way uh, yeah, you speak uh, about tumors uh, like they're people. Uh, it's true. <laughs> Behaving quietly, waking up. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, you have to consider them as, uh, as aliens. We, we, we like to consider them like... They are really uh, living creatures, of and course, very great, malignant. Great insight into the mind of an oncologist. Yeah, this is a, it's a battle, is it, on a daily basis? I love right. it. Sorry, carry, carry on. Um, so biopsy can be done. Um, you, you can do it just with a fine needle aspiration, and, uh, which is probably the easiest and the mm. cheapest way to go for it. If the cytology does not give enough information, then a uh, true biopsy, like true cut punch or surgical biopsy, is usually required. And, uh, of course, there are advantages for both the methodics. So cytology, as I said, is usually very cheap. You need only a, a needle and some slides. Mm. Um, 
while for, so usually tissue biopsy are a little bit more complicated, but the biggest advantage that they can give is that pathologists can give us an idea of the grade of a tumor. So grading a tumor is a, it means that you are assessing the aggressiveness of the tumor. Usually there are three grades, one, two, three, being the first one, the most um, quiet one, so almost benign, and the third one being the most uh, the most aggressive one, and uh, it can so be those grades <clears throat> apply to all kinds of tumors. All, it's, yes, it's not a it's not a tumor every, specific. Well, system. every it's tumor all, has a specific grading system, system. Okay. and this is something that the pathologist they they okay. know how to grade it. And unfortunately, the grading system can be applied only on the tissue biopsy, not mm. on cytology. I want to just um, before we carry on, I want to just ask you with the um, well, I wanted to comment on and ask you about the cytology thing. I think. The comment I wanted to make was that doing emergency and critical care, we um, are always encouraging people to do in-house cytology for things that are emergent, so looking for bacteria, for example, looking whether anemia is a regenerative, etc. But this is not the kind of thing that we're saying here, really, that every vet in practice should be comfortable with cytology on cancers? Well, or... I guess not. Yeah. Um, though there are a few cancers, like I'm thinking to muscle tumors, which are so peculiar that everybody, if you see it once, <laughs> yeah. you will recognize Even it. Even I can recognize everybody it. Everybody <laughs> can recognize it, yes. Yeah. But um, <clears throat> what we try to teach to our students is to be able to, good, good, to take good samples because this is really the, um, um, I would say, the key of... A good practice. If you are able to take good samples and to judge of the, the quality of the samples you have taken before to send them to the lab, yeah. then you will spare a lot of time, money, because otherwise it can be very frustrating to receive back results which are non-diagnostic, and then you have to repeat the whole process. And that makes a lot of sense. And actually, that was my second part of this, was just to ask you, like, do you see, um, say, when the students are doing it or when more junior people are doing it, do you see any kind of common mistakes with fine needle aspiration that people do? Or? That they don't check the quality of the samples okay. they have taken. So it's not the technique so much? No, the sure technique, got... no, honestly, because you change your technique based on your results, right? But if you don't check the quality of the samples and you just send them to the lab without knowing whether it is diagnostic or not, yeah. there is a big risk that uh, you won't have a result and then you have to explain to the clients why they have paid and maybe the dog have been put in anesthesia. You know, it's really a waste of time and money. Yeah. So, yeah. That's so make sure you have good samples. Right. Okay. And I interrupted you talking about um, the gradings of different cancers. Did you, was there anything else you wanted to say about that at all or not? Um, that's something that we usually need, um, in order to decide whether, okay. which one is the best approach to the patient. Because if we know that we are dealing with a cancer that is, uh, let's say a grade three sarcoma, we know that the metastatic rate will be much higher. Yeah. So, and we have already to prepare the owners that maybe this dog will need chemotherapy afterward, not only surgery. So really the approach, the prognosis and the therapy will change based on the grading. Okay, great. And then I think sort of following on from that, really, the next thing I wanted to talk to you was about if you could remind us about the different kind of biological behaviors of um, types of cancer in terms of local invasion versus kind of distant metastases. 
And then sort of following on from that and from what you've just said, really, I guess, if you could kind of explain a little bit about what we mean by staging cancer, that would be great. Yeah, a staging, the staging of a patient is a, um, a very important step in our, in our um, daily um, yeah. work. <laughs> so usually when a diagnosis is reached, we usually move to the next step, which is uh, the staging of the patient. And as I mentioned before, cancer can give metastasis, and their presence complicates the treatment um, and also will change the prognosis. Every single tumor has different staging systems, and each stage is related to a different survival time and therapy. So knowing exactly the stage of a tumor will lead us to different decisions. And I keep interrupting you. Sorry, yeah, no, but, don't um, worry. When you say that, so do we have enough clinical evidence base that we can make those kinds of suggestions based on the staging as yes, we do. Yes, definitely. We have, although the oncology literature is not the strongest one because oncology is a very, is a relatively young field. Mm. But yeah, for example, a, a sarcoma of soft tissue, a soft tissue sarcoma that uh, hasn't spread without metastasis it has a very, very high chance to be completely cured, that we don't have to think about it for the rest of the life mm. of the dog, mm. while a sarcoma that has already spread, let's say, to a lymph node or to the lungs, can be cured. We can only palliate and maybe to extend the life of mm. the patient, but we, we can't expect to cure him. So, so you, don't, you don't find yourself often going, oh, I didn't think that was going to go that way. Or, oh, no, no, you know, no. Usually, so, yes, and we yeah. try to put all the information information together in order to assess, uh, to try to predict the behavior of the tumor. That's interesting. Okay, cool. Um, and I guess then we should finish, well, not quite finish, but talk a little bit more about the, um, the treatment against in, in kind of general terms and what, what are we essentially trying to achieve? What are the aims of the treatment and what are your potential options when you're approaching a patient that has cancer? We usually have three big weapons uh, to fight cancer. This little this daily alien, that you wage, exactly, yeah, <laughs> um, which are surgery, radiation therapy, and chemotherapy. Surgery and radiation are usually considered as local therapies, so used to address solid tumors. While chemotherapy is a systemic therapy that we suggest in case of again, systemic tumors such as leukemias or lymphomas, or solid tumors where we know that there is a high metastatic potential. Mm. So we really want to um, decrease the chance for these micrometastases to, to develop, to so, grow. So chemotherapy for a localized solid tumor it, it would really not work. be a sensible choice? Not really. Um, again, there are exceptions. Like, let's say this is a very aggressive tumor, mm. a grade 3 tumor. Yes, so chemotherapy will probably work because you have to consider that chemotherapy is not a very smart therapy. It just kills everything that it is <laughs> proliferating. That's the reason why you can have side effects. Yeah. So um, the side effects of chemotherapy can be on the bone marrow or on the GI tract because of the nature of the yeah, normal cells. If a tumor is a grade three, grade 3 tumor, it means that it is actively proliferating mm -hmm. and there is a higher chance to, um, to kill some of the cells with chemotherapy. Um, 
And again, I go off on a tangent in a way, but do, do we do localized chemotherapy? So We don't. And this is a, um, but it is for safety reason for ourselves, because you have to consider that every chemotherapy has a, pot, um, is potential cancerogenic, teratogenic and mutagenic mm. also for the operator. So if you give it intralesionally, for example, mm. there is a big chance of spreading in the, in, in the environment and this is something that definitely we I don't see. want to do. Yeah. Okay. Is, is there any experience with that in human medicine that you know of? They do also in veterinary medicine. There are some publications, for example, squamous cell carcinomas of cats mm. with intralesionally uh, bleomycin. This is something that it can work. Yeah. Um, I'm not a big fan, though, okay. just because of safety, safety. reason. Yeah. But conceivably, the, the side effects might be less. Much less, yes, yeah. because you don't give it systemically, so you won't expect uh, systemic side effects. Okay. So maybe in the future, that might get another look. <laughs> maybe. Okay, excellent. Um, and then something that um, I actually hadn't heard of, really, to be fair, until last year, and the reason I came across it was... Uh, a story in itself, but basically a dog that I'd rescued and fostered out developed a sarcoma. And anyway, the conclusion of that in discussion with members of the oncology service was that we could, um, it was a sarcoma that was non-resectable really without very aggressive surgical intervention. And then one of the options that was proposed to me was this thing called metronomic chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't heard about it before. So what is that? So I started to try to read about it and find out a little bit more about it, but I would not be surprised if most people that listen to this podcast have never heard of metronomic chemotherapy again i love the name but i wondered if you could explain a little bit about what we mean by metronomic chemotherapy and what is it trying to do differently to kind of traditional chemotherapy yeah. i guess so that's a um, kind of a new approach that is gaining more and more uh, po- popularity mm. between oncologists um, in contrast to classic cytotoxic chemotherapy which um, which is the administration of a drug at its maximum tolerated dose. Metronomic chemotherapy consists in low-dose chemotherapy administered at le- regular, very short intervals over long periods of time. And the name metronomic is because it is just as a metronome used to keep proper and regular time in music. So, um, so too is a um, metronomic chemotherapy schedule. Interestingly, and in contrast with the classic chemotherapy, the goal of metronomic chemotherapy is not the same, is not to kill directly cancer cells. So the conventional chemotherapy at higher doses will affect directly the replicating cells, as I explained before. But the metronomic chemotherapy is... um, thought to improve the tumor control by inhibiting angiogenesis and promoting the Im- an anti-tumor immune response. So it's not at- acting directly on the tumor cells, okay. but on the environment mm-hmm. around uh, the tumor cells. It's, a, it's an indirect effect. Um, there are this, mainly there are two ways um, of, of two mechanisms of actions of, of um, metronomic chemotherapy. The first one is that the new vessels, the new um, vessel which are meant to feed the tumor. Feed the alien <laughs> monster. Yeah. Exactly, the alien. <laughs> yeah. um, um, they are very sensitive to 
small doses of chemotherapy. So giving these small doses, this metronomic chemotherapy, we really hope to stop those vessels to grow, to proliferate, in order to starve the tumor. So the tumor won't have enough food to grow enough. And again, presumably because it's a systemic therapy, um, that's an effect that may occur in other parts of the body. But I guess in other parts of the body, angiogenesis is not quite as active exactly that that's something that usually angiogenesis were um, is something that happens if you have for example an injury i'm mm. thinking i don't know a liver injury where the liver is asked to reproliferate in that case you will have some neoangiogenesis but otherwise it won't happen in a normal body yeah. the tumor will ask the body to produce new vessels so um and and this is a very nice way and it is Quite interesting that just the new vessels will be affected by the metronomic chemotherapy and not the normal vessels. The other mechanism of action is, and this has been very well proven, there are cells which are called T-regulatory cells, and these are T-lymphocytes which inhibit the immune system. Um, if we don't have, like, for example, in immune-mediated diseases, mm. there is a lack in these T-regulatory cells. But in cancer, there is a overproduction no, of t- these T-regs. And we know that through the, meco- the metronomic chemotherapy, we can um, decrease the amount of these uh, T-regs, T-regulatory cells. T-regs. <laughs> T-regs, <yes>. yeah. <laughs> so to... Um, try to switch on the immune system against the tumor. So at the end, there are many other mechanisms of actions. These are the, most, the, the two more important. But uh, at the end, the, the effect of the metronomic chemo on the tumor will be to kind of freeze it, to stop it to grow which can be very advantageous, in, yeah. especially in case of um, advanced cancer, where we know that there are already metastases, but we will try to stop them to grow. Um, and when you were saying with kind of short, I think you said give it regularly short intervals or whatever, what kind of, I mean, I think with the dog that I was looking after, we were giving medications on a daily basis, I think. Yes. And, and the other thing is, there's a couple of drugs that we were using, but I wondered if you could just, I don't want to spend too much time talking about this because it's probably a podcast in its own right in, in years to come, but just what kind of drugs do we use for metronomic chemotherapy? The most common one will be probably cyclophosphamide and chlorambucil, which are um, very easy to give. So the beauty of the treatment is that uh, it's something that the owners, they can do by themselves home mm. because are just literally pills that they have to give every day or every other day Mm. and since the doses are so low there are basically no side effects plus those drugs like cyclophosphamide that are extremely cheap so um, it is a very nice option for um, for advanced cancer or where the owners they can't afford more complicated treatments. Do we use um, non-steroidals for metronomic chemotherapy? Yes NSAIDs um, of any kind there is no evidence that one NSAID is better than the other one. No because the dog that we were treating um I think by virtue of being on the NSAIDs, she seemed quite. She seemed a lot happier for a while. She was running around. But there is a reason and, for this because yeah. we know that inflammation can trigger 
the tumor growth and the tumor triggered the inflammation is mm. like a vicious cycle mm. that if we can stop through the use of NSAIDs, um, that we can have definitely a benefit for, for the patient. Excellent. That makes great sense. Um, so do you know how long we've been using metronomic chemotherapy in the hospital here and what is your collective kind of impression of the sort of responses we see to it? You don't have to expect a, a response. Um, so usually when we assess responses in oncology, mm-hmm. we talk about complete response, partial response, stable disease or progressive disease. So with metronomic chemotherapy, the goal is to have a stable disease. You, it is very rare that so we see... stable disease or a slowing of progression, I guess. Yes, um, slowing up. Somewhere around yes, there. Yes, exactly. So we won't expect dramatic changes in the size of a tumor, for example, but at least to stop it to grow mm. um, in the way that the patient can cope and live together with the tumor without being... Um, and do, do we have a sense that it's efficacious? I'm it is. It truly really is. general terms yeah. here, but you know. No, no, no. I Actually, it is. I have the feeling that it really works. There are several publications. There is one which is quite famous where they demonstrated that, for example, uncompletely removed sarcomas treated mm. with chem- metronomic chemotherapy afterward, they have definitely a um, prolonged disease-free interval. It means that the recurrence of the tumor is delayed, okay. which is great. It's something that usually we, uh, we do with radiation therapy, but sometimes it is too expensive or too complicated for the owner. So I think this is a very nice option. option. Excellent. Great. Um, so... Before we finish the podcast, really, I know that you were quite uh, keen to to make some comments about um, kind of maybe what people have traditionally, their perceptions, and I think you're going to say misconceptions about cancer in pets and the whole concept of veterinary oncology and treatments for cancer in pets, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So in essence, take it away. Um. Cancer is a problem. It is the first cause of death among pets. And uh, oncology, veterinary medicine, is a relatively young field. So I, I have the feeling that many practitioners still don't know a lot about how to, to deal with cancer. And maybe they don't even know that there are specialists that can, can give suggestions about cancer. Um, the, I have the feeling that uh, the veterinary profession has taken a pessimistic approach to cancer, offering uh, euthanasia as soon as the diagnosis was made or scaring the owners about the possible side effects of treatments, which is a pity. And this attitude is not only a detriment for the companions, but also can reinforce the fears in the clients about the disease in humans. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's important to realize now, first of all, there are specialists that can really help a lot, um, pets and, and also vets. For example, our service not only accepts 
referred oncology cases, but also provides a free informative service where we give suggestions about treatment and prognosis for cancer. And we are very happy and glad to help anybody Mm. that want to contact us. Our goal is to inform and update vets about the current um, treatment methods and palliative care. And it is not just a matter of giving hopes because... Not every tumor is a sentence of death, and this is something that has to be realized. Mm. And um, actually, if we count the um, the whole amount of cancer, half of them they can be cured, mm. which is great. And when cure is not possible, then the goal of veterinary oncology is always the quality of life, possibly extending the survival times too. But uh, I'm, I'm thinking, for example, a good example could be lymphoma, which is one of the most common cancer in our animals. Um, dog with lympho- a dog with lymphoma without being treated has a survival time of a couple of months. But if we treat it, in, the, in that case with chemotherapy, we can reach a survival time of up to two years with mm-hmm. a great quality of life because we are becoming very, very good in controlling all the side effects of chemotherapy in our animals. Um, so, again, about the fear, for example, of cancer treatments, what I wanted to say is, and to underline, again, the quality of life is always the main goal. We don't want to be worse than the tumor itself with our treatments. Mm -hmm. And this is the reason why um, we have such a discrepancy in results between human medicine and veterinary medicine. In human medicine, if a, a man, a young man has cancer, the goal is to cure it no matter what, no matter which side effects he mm. will experience from the treatment. For us, it's not like this. So we can't explain to our animals why they have to suffer of side effects or something that we give. Um, therefore, the dose and the intervals between administrations of chemotherapy or radiation therapy or surgery are much um, lighter. So we really take care of them. We, we don't want them to suffer of our our. Um, our treatment, and we try to improve the quality of life always. So I, I think we would we were kind of joking a little bit before about this, but um, doing what I do, working in the, in the emergency and critical care service, our kind of fairly limited exposure to what is probably a very small percentage of the cases you see are the ones that come to ICU in the end or at the beginning for whatever reason. Right. And I think one of the things is that there is probably a lot of there is a lot of soul searching for someone that does critical care, veterinary critical care, and human critical care. I guess, but there's there's probably this very similar thing for you. Really, is that I'm getting the sense that what you're saying is that there's a vast, a large proportion of the patients that you guys deal with, you feel that they're having a good quality of life and that you've improved their quality of life, and then there's going to be this small percentage where we start to get into a kind of grayer area, but that. You, are, you guys are never far away from making sure that that patient is ultimately the priority. And I think, I think that um, having been away from here and come back as the oncology service here has grown, um, I think I was probably in that category a few years ago of kind of being one of those people that thought, that wasn't sure about the it, whole concept of veterinary oncology. Yeah. yeah, and so like it's been a real kind of eye-opener for me to come back now and see how things have changed and to hear how some of the tumors that I, I, you know, I and my colleagues 
five years ago would have been guilty of considering to be a death sentence mm. and a very quick death sentence. Yeah. Or maybe not so anymore. So I think a lot of what you just said is, um, is very, very valid. And, you know, I don't mind saying that I probably was a little bit guilty of some of it myself a few years ago. Well, I guess it's also a matter of... Um Few like ten years ago, the the veterinary oncology was really at the beginning. So probably oncologists they didn't know exactly what to do and how to do it. So I can see that maybe the side effects were uh, more common. Mm-hmm. While now I think we are becoming more and more experienced in that and. Um, so, like for example, the cases that you see in in critical care. Um, only few of them are critical because of the treatment. Most of them are critical because of the tumor. It means that maybe the therapy was not um, efficient enough. Mm. So our, our approach and goal would be to try to change it, to do something else, to really to improve and, and try to control the tumor. But a very, very, very... Um, few of them would be um, hospitalized because of the chemotherapy well, I think side effects. Part of the thing. I think it's like you're saying, it's part of the, the need for more information and education, really. Because I think some people would say, well, yes, but if you hadn't even started and just put the animal to sleep, then they wouldn't have had to go through this period where they needed some critical care. Right. But, but even whether you agree with that or not, and again, this is probably not the time to have that sort of a discussion, but even then, in terms of the proportion of the patients we're talking about, I think that's another thing is that you can almost think that all cancer patients on treatment are going to get very, very sick and it's all ethically questionable and all that kind of stuff. And actually, the, the true reality is not that. And it's about people learning. I think we have education. to consider cancer as pain and the cancer treatments as a pain relief. That's, that's the way I see it, like pain, a painkiller. Excellent. The painkiller against the aliens. Yes. <laughs> I almost feel like the next time I see a tumor, I should go and say hello. And so like, <laughs> Excellent. Look, so we're, um, we're, we're kind of done. I think we've, um, that's all we've got time for today. And um, thank you so much for joining me. And I hope it wasn't as bad as you thought it was going <laughs> to be. Thank you for, uh, for inviting me. Um, and then, like I say, there are certainly some types, things like lymphoma, hemangiosarcoma, and various others that I hope we can come back in the future and actually just do a podcast on those. Because, again, those are things that, you know, are seen very often and it would be good to I think hemangiosal canine hemangiosarcoma was another one that there's sort of epiphany moments in recent times that misconceptions and so on so that's great and I hope we can do that again in the future um, and to the listeners as always do feel free to get in touch and give us your feedback so you can email me directly at schasani at rvc.ac.uk you can use the Royal Veterinary College's Facebook page or you can tweet at Royal Vet College and use the hashtag S.A. Clint Pod. And until next time then, do take care of yourselves. Bye-bye.